Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. This is our text for today. I'm going to start by reading this. When I conclude, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down, second week of Advent. My name's Adam, and I, um, I'm one of the pastors here to get an open scripture with you today. Um, Advent <clears throat> is a word that translated means the arrival, and it is the uh, four weeks leading up to Christmas where we as Jesus people, as Jesus followers, have this bracketed time in our calendar year that we are focused on the reality that Jesus has come near to us, that he has made his dwelling with us, <clears throat> that God has come to us. And it's in a season, I know this to be true, you know this to be true, that is completely full of activity and busyness. And in contrast to that reality, we set time aside to fixate on this idea that God has come to us. And we celebrate and we tell the story. And this year, as we are stepping into Advent and, and into this season, we're, we're kind of taking a different perspective. And, and uh, in years past, where we have really looked at the, the narrative around the time that Jesus was born, and, and we'll get into that closer towards Christmas Eve, we, we've kind of taken a perspective that, that kind of focuses out a little bit, that incorporates more time. And we're looking at these unique expressions of God's presence throughout scripture, where he has made his dwelling, where he's made his home with his people. We started last week um, with a, a look at the tent, the temple, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle, the, the, the tent of meeting that, God, that God's people were given um, to, to meet with him. And, and, and we, we, we looked at the history of God's people, starting with the promise of Abraham and Sarah, and then going to their grandson who fathered 12 sons, who became the nation of Israel, who eventually flee Egypt, um, and they're wandering in the desert. And God gives them instructions for the tabernacle, which is a Hebrew word that means dwelling. It means home. And he gives them these instructions, and, and they have this space where God is dwelling and is present and, and, and they are answering these three questions that, that we answered and looked at last week and that I have before us today, which are simply these. Are we aware and engaged in God's presence? Are we aware that God is present with us all the time? And are we engaging in his presence? Are we being renewed and sustained by God's presence? This, this reality and truth that, that we are created from God for God, and there's nothing in this known universe that meets the needs of our soul but our Creator. Are we being sustained by His presence? And this third question, are we being led by the presence of God? 
This unique expression of God's presence in the tabernacle was true for his people thousands of years ago. It's true for his people today. He is present with us. And so we looked at this, this room, this space, this moving uh, tent called the tabernacle, and then the next iteration is, is the temple that we'll look at today. And as weeks go on, we'll then look at the incarnation of Jesus himself and then his church. And my desire for us, my, my hope isn't that as we are discovering God's dwelling, my desire isn't that we then are moving towards that dwelling place that we are covering ground to be with God. My desire is that we are seeing and understanding God has already covered that space to be with us. That he has crossed boundaries we cannot cross. He has crossed distances too great for us, chasms too wide for us. He has come to be present with us and we are growing in our awareness of that presence. And that as we look at this temple, this amazing story of, of God entering this temple and there's smoke and there's fire and it's, it's beautiful and people respond with worship, that we, that we ask the question of ourselves, what does it mean for you and I to then be the temple, the dwelling where God has made his home, where his power and his presence are there? So we're going to look at this story today. Um, as we do, I want to start just with a moment of prayer for us. Father, I pray um, just in our remaining time today uh, that, that you would bless our ears and the ears of our heart um, to hear your word, that you would speak clearly to us. Um, we're thankful for this time. We're thankful to worship you, to sing these songs of love and adoration. And I pray that you help us be aware of your presence more, to understand uh, your presence more, and to engage with you. And we thank you for this day in your name. Amen. Now, I know for myself, and this is probably true uh, for, for many of us because we're a pretty pragmatic society, we don't generally think of buildings as being a very sacred space. I, I think about the church that I went to when I, um, I we started going to church when I was in middle school, high school, and the, the church I went to, uh, St. John's Assembly of God, this tiny little Pentecostal church in the middle of nowhere. And I think about the building where we actually met on Sunday morning. The building uh, came to be because a church in a neighboring city knew that our town didn't have a church building. And so for a summer project, a bunch of them came over, and over four to six weeks, they built a church building. It's kind of a cool story, all these volunteers coming and building a church for us. The, the downside is none of them were actually builders. And so it was a very, very rough-looking building. I remember one time being in the attic because I was fixing something when I was in high school and looking and noticing that, that the rafters, the trusses, the things that hold the roof up, like a third of them weren't actually touching and connected to a wall. They were just there floating. And, and remember thinking, this place is not going to be here very long. And it was a great place. I have great memories. But, but I can look and see uh, the presence of God didn't live in that building. Or think about our, our space here. This, this space that God has given us right here on, on Cesar Chavez in Northeast Portland. And, and there's memories that we've had here and there's amazing things that's happened here. And, and in fact, we've had kind of a focus on it this last year through our Now and Next projects as we're seeking to invest in this space. And, and we know that Sundays people can come here and they can hear about this Jesus who loves them, 
who wants to be present with them, wants to lead and guide their lives. And there's, there's students who are being discipled here Wednesdays. There's students, dozens of them, who come from a neighboring high school every Monday for pizza, lunch here, and, and they're growing in their curiosity about what this place is and the Jesus that it represents. But, but at the end of the day, we know God's presence doesn't, doesn't live in this building. It's a resource for us. I even remember a, a few years back, I had a, an opportunity to travel with some friends uh, to Jalan, Kosovo, and uh, Mosaic has a long-standing partnership uh, with some work, some missional work that's being done there and, and some church planting that's being done there, and I got to go there for about a week and be part of that. It was so exciting, so fun, and we were getting ready to leave and fly home. There was bad weather, and we got a call from our travel agent saying, hey, bad news, your flights have all been canceled. Um, you're going to be stuck a day, and we've rerouted your flights. You're going to be coming home in a few days, but bad news, you have to spend a day and a half in Vienna, Austria. Oh, as my friend Bob Ross would say, it's one of those little happy accidents, right? So me and my friends were in Vienna, uh, Austria, and um, they put us up in a really nice hotel. We took a train into the city, and as we're approaching the city, I see one of the most amazing buildings I've ever seen in my life. It's, this, uh, it's a church called St. Stephen's Cathedral. And actually, I, I brought a, a picture, a few pictures of it. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. And the next picture, you kind of get an idea of how big it is in the city. There's nothing like, I, I was just mind blown. We took the train, I walked up, and I, I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. I started reading about the history of the space. It it's, was finished 450 years ago, and it took 450 years to build. So the building of this church started about 900 years ago, and which is just mind-blowing to me, the fact that, that generation after generation laid the foundation and began to build walls for a cathedral that they would never see completed. And it was amazing, and all of this work has happened there. And yet, as I look at this amazing place. That's not where God lives. That's not where his presence dwells. So we're telling the story of this temple, this space that we read about in the Old Testament that was built by God's people, Israel. And we can see that it's unique and it's special. There's something amazing about this place because it's it's a reference point from something that, that used to be that was perfect that we'll look at. And it's a, it's a marker and a foreshadowing for something that will come that we'll also look at. But in this moment, what it represents for the people of God is the place where heaven and earth meet. This place where what they need because of their broken humanity can be met with God's grace and his favor. This place called the temple. We started last week with a real brief history of God's people going back all the way to Abraham and Sarah and a promise that God made to them and then his, his grandson leads to Israel and, and, and they flee Egypt. They're in the desert. They have the tabernacle. Eventually they get to the place, the land that God has promised them. And as they get to this land, they, they are starting to form more as a nation, as a kingdom. And as they're becoming a kingdom, they're, they're deciding that, well, if we are a kingdom, we need a king. We need someone to lead us and someone to represent us. Now, what's a little bit off about this is that to this point, God has been present with them. God has been leading them. Yes, they are a kingdom, but they already have a king. 
God is meant to be their king. But they ask and they ask, God, give us a king, give us a leader, someone physical who we can see, who we can, uh, can follow their lead. And, and so God grants them this request. And the first king of Israel was selected by the people of Israel, and it's a man named Saul. Um, and they selected him based on his military expertise and his physical stature. We read in, in, in 1 Samuel 10 that he stands head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a middle linebacker. He knows how to go to war. He's their guy. And so they select him as their king, and he leads. There's some things that he does well. There's some things he doesn't do so well. He's very jealous. His story ends kind of tragically, not so good. And then the next king is raised up. But, but instead of the people of Israel choosing, God himself chooses the next king of Israel. And we know from Scripture that God doesn't just look at the outside. He doesn't just look at the physical abilities or even the mental abilities. He, he looks at the heart. And he chooses a very unlikely man named David. And David becomes the second king of Israel. And he's a, a prolific king. He's a warrior. He's a poet. He does amazing things. He has amazing feats. He's written much of the Psalms that we read in the book of Psalms. He's, he's great. He also has his downside. He has great sin. He has things that he has done that are tragic and terrible. He has assaulted a woman, impregnated her, and she is married to one of his soldiers who he then has killed. David has his problems, but, but one of the passions of David's, of David's heart that we read about over and over again is the dwelling of God. We read in scripture that David says at one point, man, I, I live in this house made of cedars, this beautiful home, and, and yet God has no home. He's in this tent. And so he seeks to build God a temple, beautiful, ornate, like nothing else. And so the, the final years of David's life are him acquiring everything to build this temple, precious stones, talented craftspeople, the materials that are going to be needed, the plans that God has given, all of this stuff he is pulling together towards the end of his life and in his final days he brings his son Solomon, who is going to be the next, the third king of Israel, and he charges him with this mandate to build God a dwelling, to build him a temple. And in the book of Kings, just several years into Solomon's reign, we see that he does just this. This is 1 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 6. In the in 408th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, into the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So Solomon, this third king, is, is taking all of the treasure and the workers and everything that his father has amassed, and he's beginning to build this dwelling. Then in verse 11, it says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon, As for the temple you are building... If you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep my covenants and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promises I have given to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites. It will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. The second dwelling of God. This temple is created and it's built and it's serving the people of God. As I mentioned, it's this place where heaven, where God's kingdom overlaps with the kingdoms 
of the world. This place where what's broken in my life, where I have made mistakes, where I have sinned and gone against God's will, there's a place now where mediation can be made for me, where I can be made right before God in this temple. This place that serves as a visual representation of God's promise, his uh, presence, and his providence where he has provided what's needed and he is present there and his promise, this covenant he has made, is made visually clear for us over and over for his people to see in this temple. Now, if you're, you're trekking along and, and you know we're in our, our second week of Advent and I'm talking about visual representation of God's presence, his providence, and his promise, there's some foreshadowing that we can see where this is going, Right? We can see this leading up to Jesus. We can see this leading up to the Son of God, bringing those things, being the visual representation of God. But this is what this temple represents. And Solomon builds this temple, and then in the reading that we started with, it says this again. It says, when Solomon, this is Second Chronicles 7, when Solomon finished praying that the, that the temple has been completed, fire came down from heaven, and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement, their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. The second dwelling Solomon oversees the building. When it's built, it's prayed over, it's consecrated, and God's presence descends as fire coming down, burning up the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, and everyone responds with worship. What a scene, right? Man, I, I love stories like this because it reminds me when we're gathered together, when we come together for the purposes of honoring God and celebrating God, it, it's the same God. That we're joining in with what they're experiencing in this story, in the presence of God, the weighty presence of God is evident and clear. And they respond with worship. Solomon is exuberant wanting to be extravagant in his worship. In fact, it goes on to talk about the, the sacrifices that he brought, and it says in verse 5 uh, that Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Ew. I don't know why he went overboard with that. That's a lot of animals. But Solomon, in his exuberance, he brings all these things, and here's this moment where God inhabits this dwelling and becomes present, becomes a visual promise to his people that I'm here. I have what you need. My provision is here for you. My presence, you can see and experience for yourself in this flame that is coming down and consuming the sacrifice. This temple, the second dwelling, it's an echo of, of what was, which was originally perfect in Eden. God's original design and plan in Eden and, 
and within Eden's borders was a garden. And within that garden was, was a tree of life. And this temple that was built had an outer court, and then it had an, an, an inner court, an inner room that, that only priests could go to. And then within that was a, what was called the Holy of Holies that could only be entered through ceremony, uh, ceremony and ritual of cleansing for the, the, the high priests. It was an echoing of God's original creation where he dwelt with his people before sin entered, before brokenness entered the human story. It's a marker towards the past. It's foreshadowing for the future of a visual representation of God, bringing his presence, bringing his promise, and bringing his providence. It's foreshadowing through Jesus. We'll look at this in the weeks to come, but that's what Colossians tells us, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, that he becomes that temple, that God dwelt in him, the visual representation of his promise to us. The temple represented all these things, but it was also an imperfect representation. We read about this in the, the book of, of Kings. Kings in, in our Bibles, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Originally it was just Kings, but because it's so long it couldn't fit on one scroll, so it became two books. But, but the story of Kings tells, starts with the, the, the building of this temple and, and, and all the feats that Israel does, and it's kind of the high watermark for the people of Israel. Their temple is renowned. People, we read about it, come from all over. They want to see this temple. They then want to see the house that Solomon, the palace that Solomon built from himself. And it's kind of this high watermark of the people of Israel. But as the book of Kings continues, we, we see that, that the people of God become wayward. The original promise that God had for them is that he wanted to bless them and through them bless all the peoples of the earth. And and in return, he wants them to be his people. He wants their heart. But we see king after king beginning to lead the people into different directions towards serving different gods. Solomon himself began to marry people, began to marry women from other countries began to make treaties through marriage with other countries and, 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 and living in ways that, that God did not ask and did not decree. And as time goes on, there, there are kings that are good, but there are also kings that are desperately wicked who lead Israel, who begin to bring uh, idols and other gods into this temple, even to the extent of sacrificing young people to these gods. So the book of Kings, it, it tells the story of this temple being built, but but it ends tragically with, with the, temple, the temple being destroyed and, and the people of God falling into the hands of the Babylonians. And this construct that God had given his people to be a standing promise of, of his presence in their life and his provision in their life began to be used for themselves as their own nationalistic ambitions, as a sense of pride for themselves. And so we see this temple that, that, that was built by Solomon, and, and it, it represented all these amazing things and beautiful things, but it was an imperfect representation of how God truly wanted to be with his people. So it leads us to a question for ourselves. Think about the ways that, that we engage with God and, and the ways that, that he's made himself known to us and the ways that we worship him and engage his presence in his providence, and it, it, it begs the question of ourselves. 
Are there things, are there pieces of that construct that are wrapped up around our own ambitions? They're wrapped up around our own desires and things that, that, that we want to see for ourselves rather than fully submitted to God. What did God want from this temple? What is he seeking? You know, it's, it's fascinating. He has a conversation with Solomon after the temple is built and, and it's consecrated and, and, and his presence comes like a fire and consumes all these things. And, and in the conversation that he has with Solomon, he doesn't say, now this is my temple. Look at its jewels. It's cut from limestone. It's strong. It's powerful. It's going to be here for thousands of years. This represents me well. Solomon, let's start talking about the next edition. Let's start talking about how we can make it even more opulent, how it can become the desire of all the world because this temple represents me. God doesn't say any of that. After all of this temple is built and this whole scene happens and all the people are amazed, he goes back to Solomon and he says, Man, I really just want your heart. For the people that I call my own, I don't need them to build for me. I don't need an opulent place. I, I really just want your heart. Not divided, but fully committed to me. This is his desire. Not to live in a building, even an opulent building, even one that took centuries or hundreds of years to be built. He wants to make his home with his people. Listen to this story. This is in Acts chapter 7. We're, we're jumping forward a, a lot of years here. There's a story of a, of a man um, who is before some of the religious leaders of their time. Um, his name is Stephen. And, and the religious leaders, uh, they struggled a little bit how Solomon struggled, where the temple, yes, it did represent the presence of God and his provision, but it also represented them as a nation, and it was their pride, and it was their place, and it was what gave them their identity. And, and Stephen, who is a follower of Jesus, who sees actually Jesus is the representation of God's presence, not this building over here, he begins to challenge them in this famous speech. And it's a really good speech. It's very provocative, and it's so provocative at the end of the speech, they drag him out of the city, and they throw stones at him until he's dead. This is what he says in Acts 7, 44. Our ancestors, talking about the people of Israel, had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had set. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took it from the land to the nation God drove out before them, their promised land. It remained in the land until the time of David who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him, the temple. Stephen, in his speech, discovered two weeks of our, our talks in like three verses. Way to go, Stephen. It says in 48, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where is his resting place will be? Has not my hand made all of these things? Stephen, Stephen gets it. It's never about 
a tabernacle or a temple. These were foreshadowings for a better thing, a better mediation for the brokenness of humanity, a clear hope, a clear representation of the promises of God, not a home made by human hands. 1 Corinthians tells us, don't you know, you are the temple of God's spirit, that you are not your own. You are the place that God has made his dwelling. If you believe the claims of Jesus, are trusting him as Lord, you have become the dwelling place of the most high God. It's quite an amazing thought when we read about God inhabiting this temple, the Old Testament temple, for the first time. It says that the Solomon prays and they consecrate, right? And he shows up with the weighty presence of fire, consuming and powerful. The same power existing within us as God's temple. Another story from, from Acts. If we are this temple, if we are this place where God lives, then that same power that shook foundations, that caused the nation of Israel to fall to their knees and worship, that priests couldn't even come near, that same power then resides within you and I. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming in power. It says this in verse 2, and suddenly a sound like blowing wind, a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. This is disciples of Jesus. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separate and came and rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, with God's presence, and began to speak in other tongues as a spirit enabled them. The consecration of the New Testament temple is God's spirit dwelling within you and I. As we're approaching the Advent season, these weeks set apart to recognize that God's representation of his power, his providence, and his promise was made realized in the person of Jesus. And that Jesus then invites us into community and family with him and places his spirit within us. So the question that I began with, I'm going to put it back before us. What does it mean? What does it look like for you to be the dwelling place of this powerful God? What does it look like for you and I to be the dwelling where God has made his home within us? If we think about this original promise that God made, where this, this story starts, it was to Abraham that I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the world. And through you, I'll bless all the world. That presence exists within us so that we can be God's representation. The physical characteristics of who he is, his presence, provision, and power to the world around us. This is his power within us. 
I'm going to invite our band to, to come back up, and we're going to come to these tables. If, if you're watching at home, you can, you can get some elements ready. But we're going to come to these tables because they represent Jesus. The juice represents his blood spilt. The cracker represents his body broken on a cross. And it's, it's the story of Jesus obediently becoming the sacrifice so that you and I could be the temple that God dwells in. And we come to this table not casually. We come to this table, as 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us, after examining our hearts, after sitting with questions like, what does it mean for me to be the temple of the Most High God, to bring his presence to all the relationships in my life, to the places that I work, to the places that I live? As we come to this table today, I'm going to put that that scene in our minds, Second Chronicles, where God is feeling the temple and his power is evident and clear. And people are responding with worship. This is the God whose presence dwells within us, is present with us. Let's come to this table in awe and worship with the clarity that he has made his home, his dwelling in us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you. Um, thank you that throughout human history, you have consistently moved towards us. Whatever the unique expression looks like, whether it's a, a tent, 